four years old and kindergarten through fifth grade, you are welcome to attend Children's Church at this time, and you get it right out the doors in the back. Good morning, church. It's great to see you today. And if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 4. And if you're new with us, maybe you didn't bring your Bible this morning, that's okay. Uh, we came prepared. So there's a black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And I want to encourage you to open that up and follow along with us uh, through the story we're going to study today. If you've got a copy of God's Word open the whole time, uh, it will really benefit uh, your experience in our study today. So Genesis chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 17, is where we'll spend our time this morning. This is beautiful. All this is incredible. And it just it makes me think um, just how grateful I am for your generosity uh, to give faithfully so that uh, we have full-time children's staff and we have a vibrant children's ministry and we can do things like Vacation Bible School, which I think uh, probably, without doing any survey work, just my own guess, is that more people have heard the gospel and come to faith in Christ through Vacation Bible School than through just about any other ministry the local church has ever done. It's an incredible week of ministry and care. So thank you, church, for making this possible for the generosity of your gifts and your time and your sacrifice. This week, here's what I need you to do. If, if you're not here working with us day after day, what I need you to do is I need you to commit to pray every day this week for Vacation Bible School. That's real work, and we really need you to do that. Pray every day for the strength and endurance of those who are volunteering and for the clarity of the gospel in the hearts of our children. Would you do that for me this week? Genesis chapter 4, let me encourage you to take a few notes as we study today. Uh, we live in a part of the country that has two major distinctions about it. Uh, the first major distinction about this area is that it's a place of incredible success really remarkable affluence. Boston Metro has the best schools and powerful corporations and technological advancement and incredible wealth and the best sports teams as well. Someone was <laughs> going to throw that in if I didn't. Um, but every kind of success can be found just right here in our own backyard. That's a major distinction of this area. The other major distinction is this. Boston Metro year after year, is recognized as one of the most spiritually dark places in our country. Every worldly success and utter spiritual failure. How do we live in a land like this? What are we little people in a little church to do in a place like this? It's the same lesson that God's people Israel had to learn from Genesis chapter 4. If you remember the setting, who is it that wrote this? It's written by Moses, and he wrote it originally for God's people Israel, somewhere between their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and their entrance into the promised land. And here's this generation of people that have only known slavery and oppression and loss of value and personhood, and they have only known Egypt's gods. And so now they're learning what it is to live with this God who has delivered them, who has saved them. 
what it means to be his people. And as they walk towards the promised land, here's what they're going to see. They're going to see cities. They're going to see armies. They're going to see wealth. They're going to see every worldly success that people achieve without God. And how are they to understand that? How are they to make sense of it? Are they to desire that sort of worldly success? Are they to pattern their lives in such a way as to be like those who don't know God and yet have built great cities and achieved great things? What does it mean to be God's people in the midst of a land with incredible worldly success and total spiritual failure? So in Genesis chapter 4, Israel learned and we learn that in a world full of success and sin, God's people must remain committed to God's way and worship. We study this right this morning. We walk out of here with our eyesight fixed in terms of what it means to be God's people and what it means to see the world for what it is. And when we, live, when we study this right, when we apply it to our hearts, uh, we'll walk out of here more convinced than ever of the power of God to transform the lives of the people that we live around. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to show you how to glorify God in a world of success and sin. And Genesis chapter 4 gives us two scenes that help us make sense of this. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 17. You'll remember from our study a couple of weeks ago, Genesis 4 opens with the birth of Cain and Abel. And Cain killed his brother Abel. And if you remember from our study two weeks ago, the reason Cain was so upset had nothing to do with the offering he gave to God, had nothing to do with his grains, had everything to do with his heart. He was a broken man inside and out, but he met with the grace of God. And now we pick up the rest of Cain's story starting in verse 17. Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Erad was born to Enoch. Erad fathered Mehujael. Mehujael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of the nomadic herdsmen. His, brother's name, or his brother was named Jubal. And he was the father of all who played the lyre and the flute. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, when we finish reading this passage, you might think, that's really weird. Doesn't make a lot of sense. 
We've got this family tree of Cain. We got Lamech who's talking to his wives and he's killed a guy and, and someone's going to be avenged. And then all, here's Adam and Eve having another son. This is all really strange. In a way, it is strange, but I, I think there's a better word we could use to label this story, and that word is familiar. Because this same story has been lived out time and time again throughout the history of humanity. It's the story of those who have worldly success without God and those who walk with God, who call on the name of the Lord. This story is far more familiar than you might realize. It gives us two scenes to consider as we think about what it is to be God's people in a place like this. The first scene the story gives us is the scene of worldly success without God. So verses 17 through 24, all that part about Cain, his descendants, and then Lamech and his wives and kids, all of that gives us this picture of worldly success without God. So here's what happens to Cain after he has murdered his brother. If you'll remember from our study earlier in chapter 4, whenever Cain kills Abel, Cain becomes terribly upset. But do you remember why he's upset? He's not upset because he killed his brother or because he sinned against God or because he's broken relationships with his family. He's upset because he's afraid of someone else taking his life in vengeance for killing Abel. And so God has pronounced a curse on Cain. The earth will not be your friend. Things are going to struggle for you. You're banned from your people. And Cain complains, this is too much for me. And so God in his grace put a mark on Cain so that people would not harm him. He can live his life and until the very end. He won't be killed prematurely. We don't know what that mark was on Cain. I read one argument that said the mark on Cain was not some physical mark of God's grace, but rather it was this city that he builds in chapter 4. That city was a safe haven for him and for others like him. Could be. Who knows? The Bible doesn't give us the answer. We don't have to get lost in that detail. But Cain's life, after he kills his brother, goes on this really interesting trajectory. He has a son. He gives that son a name. He builds a city. He named the city after his son. And then we have this, sort of, this lineage that comes from Cain. His son had a son, and that guy had a son, and that guy had a son, all the way down to Lamech. So Cain's name continues. Uh, His genealogy moves forward. And in all of Cain's success, all of his expansion, the establishment of this city, do you know what's missing in all of that? There's no remorse for sin. No turn back to God. No repentance from what he did. No effort on his part to be a man who walks with God. But rather, Cain lives true to this sinful character. The same man who pitched a fit because God in his grace didn't accept a hollow sacrifice is the same man who builds cities and builds a name for himself and does all of that without bowing a knee to God. By the time we get down Cain's family line to Lamech, what we find is that the same hard heart that was in Cain is also present in Lamech, but even worse. From generation to generation, this sin compounds itself. So when we meet Lamech in verse 19, we're given this really shocking detail about his life. Look at verse 19. It tells us Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada, the other named Zillah. Two wives. Where'd that come from? That's not in Genesis. That's not in God's word or command or blessing. 
God's design, we know from chapters 1 and 2, is that God blesses one man and one woman in covenant marriage. For this reason, you shall leave your father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. Not the three can become one flesh. Or the one man and as many wives as he wants can become one flesh. It's one man and one woman. Sometimes we read about polygamy in the Old Testament and we think, oh, it's just, I guess it's okay. It's not okay. God never blesses polygamy in the Old Testament. On a side note, um, my wife Melissa and I, we, you know, we have uh, deep connections in Uganda. And we have a friend there uh, who is a Muslim uh, and he practices polygamy. And here's the line he said that helped us understand what it's like to be a polygamist. This one man has eight wives. And he said this, the more wives a man has, the lonelier he is. Hey, someone should put that on some aged wood and sell it at Michael's or something. I and mean, that's truth. <laughs> that makes sense. The more wives a man has, the lonelier he is. This is not God's design. But Lamech chases after his appetites. What Lamech wants, Lamech takes. Lamech and his wives have children. We're told about his son. They have three sons and a daughter between the two wives. His son, Jabal, is a herdsman. He develops animal husbandry. The Bible is not necessarily telling us that he invented it. It's just that he became the master of it. His son, Jubal, he becomes a master of music. His son, Tubal Cain, he masters the making of tools. I mean, his kids are killing it. They're doing things that bring their dad such honor. When people see Lamech's kids, they think Lamech's a great man. Must be a great man to make kids like this who do these sorts of things. It's really impressive what they all accomplish. Again, they accomplish it all without God. Then we get to verses 23 and 24, and we see Lamech's character laid bare as if we didn't know the man already. In verses 23 and 24 in your Bible, it might be offset a little bit as if it's a separate poetic section. It's commonly called the Song of the Sword. And Lamech calls his wives together, and he tells them of a confrontation he's just had. He said, a man struck me, and I killed him. It's important to understand the difference between Lamech's killing of this man and Cain's killing of Abel. There is a qualitative difference between the two. Cain waited in hiding and attacked his brother unprovoked. Lamech says, I'm defending myself. This man struck me, and so I killed him. And in Lamech's warped understanding of justice, this is okay. This is just. He was well within his right to take blood from this man because this man struck him. We don't know all the details of the confrontation. Lamech probably isn't the most trustworthy reporter. But here's what you and I do know just from a surface level look at the story. Murder in response to a strike is not justice, not equitable. It's a problem. But Lamech doesn't see it that way, does he? He has his own warped sense of justice, his own way of viewing how vengeance should be applied. 
And then he makes this interesting comment in verse 24. He says, if Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. Remember God's conversation with Cain earlier in chapter 4. Back in verse 15, Cain is afraid that he'll be killed as an act of vengeance for killing his own brother. And so God said, verse 15, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. So if some random person comes up, kills Cain, God's going to exact seven times worth of vengeance on them. What does Lamech say in verse 24? If Cain's to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it'll be 77 times. Yeah, so here's how much God is on my side. I was so right in killing this man that if anyone does anything to me, God's going to blast them 77 times over. He's claiming God is on my side. And here we are with all of this power, all of this accomplishment, these kids who are doing all these incredible things, and now I've got justice, and God is on my side in all of this. Now, Lamech, of course, missed the point of God's vengeance or God's protection over Cain. God's not setting up a principle of justice uh, so that it can be warped and twisted by those who would follow Cain, but rather God's trying to limit the shedding of blood. He's trying to stop killing from happening. But Lamech instead wants to multiply bloodshed. He's a twisted man. So the story of Cain and his lineage and his people and all that follows them, in one respect, it's a really impressive list of accomplishments. If we just had this resume that showed us Cain and all that he and his family did, we would say, man, that's impressive. Let me show you here on the screen just a bullet point list of all this story has given us of the things that Cain and his family has accomplished. In verse 17, Cain has a son. And in verse 17, Cain has a city. And in verse 18, Cain has a lineage. In verse 19, Lamech has not one wife but two wives. And then in verse 20, Lamech's son Jabal commands herds. And in verse 21, Lamech's son Jubal creates music. And in verse 22, Tubal Cain makes tools of metal. In verse 23, Lamech has justice as he defines justice. And in verse 24, Lamech claims to have God on his side. They're culture shapers, city builders, people makers, lineage builders, justice appliers. By every worldly standard, we would look at this and say, yeah, Lamech, you're right. God must be on your side because look at all you have done and all you have accomplished on your own. It's an impressive list of accomplishments. And yet, these people were utter failures because you know what's missing from all of this. What's missing is God. In all they accomplished, they never call on the name of the Lord. They didn't thank Him for their city. They didn't thank Him for their children. They didn't use the animals to make sacrifices to Him. They didn't use their music to worship Him. They did all of this without the Lord and for their own names. The problem in the story is not their progress and achievements. The Bible is not anti-progress. The Bible is not anti-education, anti-learning, anti-earn a paycheck. The Bible is not anti-any of that stuff. The problem is with the way their godless lives warp them. This is not the people God has made us to be. Lamech responded to a strike with a killing. He didn't love his neighbor as himself. Lamech tried to make God his servant. God's on my side. But he didn't love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
in all of this success, there's a sadness to it because it's all hollow without God. We live in an area filled with impressive people and impressive accomplishments. In this room, impressive people and impressive accomplishments. All around us, beautiful homes, massive wealth, important jobs, shining reputations, excellent activism all around us. People have meaningful lives and many accomplishments, yet for so many of them, their lives are hollow and empty without Jesus Christ. They are living for things they were not created for. They have taken tiny trinkets and made gods out of them and said, this is what my life is worth. And it's tragic. What a tragedy to have every worldly success and yet not know God. What a tragedy to achieve great things on your own in your own power and to never call on the name of the Lord Dear friends, do not envy those who have gained the whole world and yet lost their soul. But rather pray for them. And as often as you have opportunity, give them Jesus. You are friends with these people, neighbors with these people, family members with these people. Give them Jesus. Do not assume worldly success means they're doing okay. Don't assume that because they have much and you don't, that they've got some secret. They know there's some way they're better off. Isn't that the way that so many of us are? We'll look at someone with $2 and we only have one and we think, man, if I had $2, all my problems would be solved. But God's people live with the Lord according to God's way. Our pursuit is not for worldly success at the expense of our souls, What we desire is for God to be God and for people to worship him and honor him. Human beings have always been impressed with our godless accomplishments. We believe in human potential. We believe in human power. We believe that our identity is in our work or it's in our sexuality or it's in our accumulation of stuff. We'll believe whatever we want and then we'll say, "Hmm, God's on my side. Look at all I have, all I've accomplished. It must be because God loves me. What a sad thing to have all of that and not have God and be blind to the condition of your own soul. And so as we read through the story of Cain and his family, there's a warning to all of us. It's this wake-up call. This is not okay. This is not the way God intends people to live and walk with him. There's got to be a better way, and there is. This story has two scenes to it. The first scene is about worldly success without God, and the second scene is about God's way and worship. So over and against the godless worldly success of the family of Cain comes God's blessing once again through Adam and Eve. Just as Cain's story began with a birth, remember that just a few verses ago, verse 17, he has a son. Well, just as his story began with the birth of a baby, so too Adam and Eve's account here in chapter 4 also begins with the birth of another son. His name is Seth. And in Hebrew, Seth means given. Eve says as much in verse 25 when she says this. Look at it with me. Eve, after Seth's birth, says, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Now, this statement at the birth of Seth is different from what Eve said at the birth of Cain. Go back to the beginning of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 Cain is born, 
The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Some read that, and they see in Eve's words a pride, an arrogance, a sort of chest pounding, look what I've done, and the Lord has helped me. I made a son, and the Lord helped me in this. I've been like God in that I've made life. And then we get to the birth of Seth, and her language is distinctly different. It's not, look what I've made, it's, look what God has given. Eve's a different woman when we get to the birth of Seth. She's experienced great loss, great pain, and even in her brokenness, the Lord has humbled her and given her a different heart. She makes this interesting observation. She says, Seth is given to replace Abel. Seth isn't given to replace Cain. Seth is given to replace Abel. Remember back in chapter 3, whenever God confronts Adam and Eve in their sin and the serpent as well, God made a promise that the offspring of Adam and Eve would crush the head of the serpent. There's a promise lingering. It's a promise that Eve carries with her even in the birth of Seth. With the birth of Cain, she's got this promise in mind as well. My guess is that she expected her firstborn son, the one she made with the help of the Lord, to be the child of promise who would crush the head of the serpent. But that wasn't God's plan, was it? God's plan never goes according to our predictions. We're, we're wrong all the time. God always gets it right in his own way. It's not the oldest who's going to be the child of promise. It's going to be the child who is born in weakness. It's Seth. After a tragic loss, after heartbreak, after so many tears and grief, the promise isn't gone. The promise is going to be fulfilled through the one no one else would have chosen. God isn't going to fulfill his promise through the son with the city, the son with the lineage, the son with the culture makers, the son with the wives and the warped justice, but God's promise will be fulfilled through a baby who comes in weakness, born to a humble mother. Does any of that sound familiar? That God fulfills his promise through the birth of a baby and a humble mother. It's Christmas in July, you guys. Every Christmas, we're reading from Luke chapter 2. We should be reading from Genesis chapter 4. Linus recites this, the birth narrative from uh, Luke chapter 2 in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. He should be reciting Genesis chapter 4. This is, this is, and you might think, Cody, that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, I know you got to get us to Jesus, but that's kind of a weird way to go about it. No, it's not, because I want you to see what Luke chapter 3 tells us. In Luke chapter 3, we're given the lineage of Jesus through his earthly father, Joseph. And it starts like this, Jesus, son of Joseph. And then it begins to move backwards, son of Heli. And it goes all the way through these generations of names until we get to verse 38. Jesus, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. This is the child of promise. The head of the serpent will be crushed through the child of promise. You want to guess what names are not in the lineage of Jesus? No Cain, no Lamech. Build cities, make culture, warp justice, claim God's on your side, and without God, your line is dead. But through weakness and 
humble, a humble life lived with the Lord, life goes on eternally. So in a world full of affluence and sin, God's people have to remain resolutely committed to God's way. God is not going to work according to the patterns of this world. God has a plan that he's been unfolding since the very beginning, and it's nothing that any of us could have predicted or invented. In fact, let me tell you how outlandish this plan is. Here's something the world cannot believe, that one day a trumpet's going to sound. And the sky is going to split open. And there we will see Jesus Christ in the sky. And he returns for his bride, the church. The world cannot believe that we actually believe this is going to happen. It's just mythology. It's just a metaphor for some other sort of thing. But this is what the Bible tells us, is that Christ is returning. The first time he came in weakness like a baby, the next time he comes, it will be in the power of the king of all creation The first time he came like a lamb, the next time he's back like a lion. And he sets it all right once and for all. And the world would say, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about the things of God. This is where we are anchored, where our hope is, is that God will accomplish his work in his way through his people. And so our resumes may not stack up against the rest of the world. We may not have all the accomplishments the world has. We may not have all the titles, all the accumulation, all the things. But when we have God, we have everything. So whether we have a lot or we have a little, we know how to be content because we've got Christ. And that's what changes lives. That's what lasts eternally. When God's people live in God's way. But not only are we to be committed to God's way, we're we're to be committed to God's worship as well. In a world of success, affluence, and sin, we're to be a people committed to the worship of God. So, verse 26, the last verse in chapter 4, gives us this incredible line. It tells us, a son was born to Seth also. He named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord means to worship him. You're going to give prayers and sacrifices to him. Seth didn't build a bigger city. He didn't have more kids necessarily. He didn't create more culture. Didn't marry more wives. Didn't murder more bad people. Seth didn't out Cain Cain. He didn't out Lamech Lamech. But Seth and his people worshiped the Lord and invited others to do the same. So what are we supposed to do? Just quit our jobs, not pursue excellence, not try to achieve anything, not try to go to great schools or, or work in great places? Or is, that, is, is the Bible telling us just to divest ourselves of all of these things and just hold hands and sing songs to Jesus all the time? That's not what it's telling us to do. What we learn from Genesis 4 is that While the world will pound its chest at all it accomplishes, while the world will exalt itself in all that it owns, God's people must do our work and live our lives in such a way as to exalt God in everything. So whether God gives you a very public platform from which to live your life or God gives you a very quiet, humble platform from which to live your life, God gets top billing. He's the hero of the story. He's the one your life announces to everyone around you. You see, there's no little people in God's kingdom. There are people that God uses 
in massive, hugely important ways through lives lived quietly and humbly for the sake of the glory of God. The giants among us are not those who have achieved the most, but those who pray the deepest. Those who worship from the core of their beings. Those who weep for the lost and give them Jesus Christ through the story of the cross and the empty tomb. Those are the giants in God's land. Those are the ones that come into a place like this with every worldly affluence and every spiritual bankruptcy and sees lives transformed for the glory of God. The person who lives to call on the name of the Lord and see others do the same, that's the life that lives in God's blessing. So Genesis chapter 4, not such a weird story after all, is it? It's so familiar. It's the world we've always lived in. And here we are, being taught once again how it is that we live in a land full of affluence and success and sin and how we live faithfully in God's way and God's worship. The successful life is not measured by worldly metrics. can't be. But it's measured by surrender to Christ. And so here's the questions that we have to wrestle with today. As, as we reflect on our lives in light of Genesis chapter 4, we've got to ask ourselves, whose family tree am I living in, Cain or Seth? Am I living in the way of worldly success without God, or am I living in God's way, in the worship of God, for the sake of His name and His glory? Do you live for your work, for your title, your advancement, your position, your power? Do you live for money? Are you obsessed with accumulating, saving, and hoarding? Do you live for your flesh? Do you indulge your appetites and desires without discretion? Do you live a life of corruption and yet claim God is on your side? Or do you go about your life and work in humble submission to God for the glory of God? God's plan all along is that we would live in the world He has given us, doing our work and enjoying our days with Him at the center of it all. A writer named Zach Eswine said that just as Adam and Eve were given a place and food and work and each other within which God would walk with them and satisfy their souls, so the pattern remains for us, especially in a world marred by sin. We're to be a people that live with God at the center of our lives. He intends us to glorify Him with every part of our being, with our toast and our coffee, whether we swing a hammer or we change a diaper. God doesn't want you to be successful as the world defines success. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to call on His name. He wants you to live in the way of the cross. That's the successful life. The Apostle Paul said the very same thing in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. He tells us this, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In all that you do, give thanks to the Father. Do it for the name of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do your work for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And when you play or you rest or you shop or you budget, whatever it is that you do, do it all for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And then there'll be a new story that develops in this area. They won't talk about all of the worldly success and all the spiritual failure. But through the humble obedience and faithfulness 
of a humble people who look more like Jesus in this world, what will happen is people will call on the name of the Lord. This town and the towns around it will become places where men and women and boys and girls call on Jesus Christ for their salvation. They recognize the emptiness of their giant homes and accomplished lives and, or their small homes and their unaccomplished lives, and they realize, I'm made for more than this. There's more value to me than this worldly success, but there's a God who knows me and created me, and he's got a plan for my life, and he has sent his son to rescue me from my sin. And they'll call on the name of the Lord. They'll call on the name of the Lord. People will be saved. Why not here? Why shouldn't that happen here? Why wouldn't God keep his promise to his church and to his people here? God has people in this city who have not yet heard and need to. God has people all over this area. And he needs a church like us who will not be swept away by worldly success or worldly pursuits a church that will walk humbly in the way of the cross to make Jesus known to these people who are so precious to him. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. Brothers and sisters, may it be said of us that in our time, people called on the name of the Lord. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I, just, I want to make sure you understand there's this narrative, this false narrative that's, that hangs over your life. And the narrative is this, you're meant to be successful as the world is successful and God exists to help you get there. Now that's what Lamech believed. And that's how he lived his sad, short life. But here's the truth. You're meant for something greater than whatever the world considers success. You're meant to know God and to walk with him. He made you. He created you. You're not some weird accident in the cosmos. He created you. He knows every hair on your head, knows your name, every step of your life, and he loves you. And his love is remarkable because we've not really earned it. No one in here has done anything to achieve God's love. You see, the truth is all of us have Cain-type hearts. All of us have Lamech-type lives. That's where we find ourselves initially in this story. Our sin has separated us from God. God should deal with us severely. But he's merciful and compassionate. And here's what he's done for you. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sin. You should die for it. I should die for it. But God loves you so much, he provided a substitute. Jesus is God the Son. He's God with flesh on. He came lived his life in perfect submission to the Father. He's the one and only sacrifice for our sin. And when he died on the cross, he died in your place. He became your sin. He took all of God's punishment and wrath for your sin against God. And three days later, he rose from the dead, and he promises you this. If you will turn from the world, and if you will turn to him, he will forgive you and rescue you. He will give you eternal life. You will belong not just to the lineage of Seth, but you'll belong to the lineage of Jesus Christ and you'll know his glory and his goodness forever and ever. Do not think this world will satisfy you. The only way you'll, your life will be satisfied, the only way you'll know true eternal happiness 
is by a life lived with your creator and with your savior. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, thank you for the clarity of your word this morning that shows us unequivocally what a failure life is lived without you. Father, humble us as we apply this to our lives that we would not say something like, oh, well, I haven't accomplished much, so this isn't for me, this is for them. Because if we know anything about our hearts, we are quite capable at making gods out of the smallest things. We're quite capable of living arrogant and pridefully with our tiny accomplishments. But Lord, humble us this morning that we would live in such a way as to make your name known and to glorify you in all that we do. Let us be a people who live lives of worship, not just Sunday mornings of worship, but that day in and day out in every sphere of our existence we live with an awareness of you and that we live with a bold witness so that others might also call on your name. Lord, I pray for friends in here that walked in here living according to the world's values, the world's justice, the, the, the world's successes. Lord, open their eyes. Let them see their value in you and the life you have for them in Christ. Lord, call them to your side now as they call on your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we go out calling on the name of the Lord and inviting others to do so, let's